We apologize for this brief interruption in the show. As many of you likely know, the Higher Standard Podcast is officially sponsored by Transcend Company. Transcend has been my longtime provider for both testosterone and peptide therapies, but they offer so much more. Whether you're interested in health, wellness, or longevity, it all begins with you getting your blood work done. A lab draw will help you get the numbers and establish your baseline. You can go to transcendcompany.com slash THSP. That's transcendcompany.com slash THSP. Or you can click the link in the show notes on any streaming platform and on YouTube. Fill out your information and one of the representatives will contact you to get your journey started today. Now back to the show. Got a nodule? Where? Where do you keep your nodules? Wow. Um, all the places that I can. It's been so long that we've done this that Arun actually doesn't remember how to press the clock button. <laughs> are we recording? Are we live? We are live, huh, you We're son live. of a bitch. Oh, uh, see? Wow. Yeah. You know, he does that on purpose, though. What? Yeah. Uh, he wants us to think we're not recording. I know. He wants to capture that that moment, that real, genuine authenticity. We miss. I miss everybody, the listeners. That you see every time we do the show? No, that they reach out every time after the show. I'm still very much, I feel like somebody broke up with me. Um, that dude, Fish, <laughs> real, my, corrected me. My favorite postal worker, brother. What's up, dog? Yeah, he wanted me to make sure you also understood. Oh, shit. That, I understood. Yeah, We're coming out firing. That you are the best old-time influencer out there. Old guy influencer, I think is what he called it. That would be more hurtful if it wasn't probably fucking accurate. It's accurate. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's, that, that's a harsh reality I have to accept. Mm. I don't look young. No, you do. <laughs> that that was no, you do. I'm being all. serious. Fuck you. Okay? I'm being dead serious. I, he's laughing for you a got, reason. You dude. got the kicks. You got the Fabletics on. Yeah, these these do look very scrub like. By the way. Yeah, they are. They look like you're wearing some figs. <laughs> <laughs> my wife, my wife, you think she would say something, but she didn't. So yeah. Anyway, yeah, that, that, that's uh, Fabletics. I basically am turning into a tall version of Kevin Hart. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So. While we've been gone, everybody, <laughs> welcome back to the number one financial literacy podcast in the world. And uh, we record once a week, but we're giving you all the juice that one show a week now. Mm, that's, that we are, my friend. As always, sitting next to me, my partner in time, the one and only, the late, great, twice a week, Said Omar. Late, great? Did I die? Did I what? What happened? One day a week did die. <laughs> One day a week did die. Sit next single to, dosages of that man now. Sitting next to me on my left is my partner in crime, Chris Nahibi. Welcome back to the show. Mm. I miss the show very, very much. I do. I'm very, very thrown off by the extra time that I have at the moment. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I try to take a week, you know, embrace it, take it all in. Right. Enjoy a little bit of the flexibility that we had. But it's very bizarre. I, I don't know what to do with my hands. <laughs> <laughs> What am I doing? So as as jo Joanna been telling you, like, go do something. Get some work done. Why are you all about me? No, no. She had plenty of things for me to do. She was very clear. Like, I, I ran er errands for like three hours yesterday. Really? I went to all the grocery stores. Really? Yeah, my wife does. My wife has now gotten frugal, which is a wonderful thing. And she started to, like, track things, understand spending. But now mm. she's not going to go to one grocery store because she knows it's not economically viable. So she goes to, like, 40. Oh, wow. And when I say she goes... I mean, she sends me to go. Yeah, so, your honey-do list is growing. Yeah, my honey-do list is is definitely um, definitely growing. I remember back in the day when my wife and I first got married, somebody at her office introduced her to couponing, mm. and it was more of like a game for her at that point. So it became very addicting 
where she's like, oh, I can go to Home Depot and buy the same detergent for our clothes that I'd buy somewhere else and save, you know, 50% off, but you'd have to buy in bulk. That's be wild. like I'm like, uh, where are we going to store all this stuff? Yeah, dude, that's a, that's a problem in my house. I mean, you guys got these big-ass houses. I got, like, nothing. 1,180 square feet of pure love. See, I got to be careful now with what I share with you because then you just use it against me. I bet you got, like, a bulk storage somewhere in your I, house, I, don't No, you? no, I don't. Like, a little, like, storage room. You just put all the things that you have storage for? No. No, I don't. Like, L's and holiday decorations and shit? No. We don't celebrate Christmas. Thanks for knowing your friend, though. I said holiday decorations said and shit. said elves. You can't have like garden gnomes and elves and stuff. Like, Come on, Come on Chris. So you're telling me there is no Muslim out there with an elf? <laughs> no, that's not true. True, that's not true. If you're a Muslim with an elf and you listen to the show, please send an email to site at highestandardpodcast.com. <laughs> and his co-signing friend in the back, the one and only DJ Arun. What's up, everyone? Hey, you, I missed you guys. You're a big man, dude. Me what or is, what Chris. does that mean? You, I mean, you, more wow, ways bro. than one. But you jumped off DJ Grover. I expected that to carry on for a little bit. Right, he forgot. It's been that no, long. I, I just didn't remember the each specific Sesame Street character. <laughs> that's, that's uncalled for. You're the last fucking person to come at me over studying, bro. Every time you talk, you're like, <laughs> okay, so I'm clearing my throat and stuttering. I gotta be honest. At least mine can be paced. Yours hey, is just you'll die. We can't. We can't get into that. He's got a lot of reading tonight. Don't don't make do him sick. <laughs> don't start getting second guessing himself. <laughs> well, um, this one is gonna be jam packed. We don't know how much we're gonna get in. Say is gonna try to keep me narrowly tailored down to an hour. Although I'm going to try to push back to the extent that I can. I just want to give you all the stuff that you don't have. Mm. The single week show. I know so much. <laughs> All right, getting the Kobisi letter talks a lot of the events that are coming up this week. Tons of stuff going on. Some new data on CRE. We're going to jump into Wall Street's favorite recession indicator, which is now predicting a slowdown this year. Uh, we're going to talk about living through a possible tech bubble 2.0. And uh, one of my favorite activities that might uh, come from that article, if we have time, will be some charting. We're going to go charting in that one. There's some mm. beautiful pictures to look at. And for those of you who don't watch the show on YouTube, what we recommend that you do is that you listen to it on a streaming platform while you're driving or working out, and then obviously go back to YouTube and watch the video so that you can really matriculate the information. And appreciate all the effort that the team has put in. Hayden, our editor, is out there working. Grinding. Grinding. So you got to give him the views. Give Hayden some love. Then if there's time, we'll talk about the S&P is back at a record level, another record level today. I don't know if you guys saw over, I think it was 4,900 mm -hmm. or 4,500. Mm-hmm. It was, it was no, 4,900, 4,900. It, it was, uh, if that isn't peaking, bro, I don't know what to tell you. Like if, if that isn't like your college quarterback, like top of the, I mean, you know, he's not going to make the NFL, Yeah, yeah. but he's living the glory days out. Right. Right. That's what the S and P is right now. Scary, right? You're not making the league, bro. Yeah. Enjoy this. Yeah. Great reference. Was it? Yeah. It was about the extent of my sports skills. Especially this time of year too. Super Bowl's right around the corner. Yeah, I didn't even know there, there was a football game yesterday. I just heard everybody screaming and shit in my in my neighborhood. Yeah, because we live in such a small, tight quarter from one another. Okay. You guys probably don't have that experience. That um, I could hear it. Right. So yeah, I it was, was a like, big oh. game. I think the largest comeback after halftime mode. Is that right? It was a big deal. Yeah, I have no oh, idea. No. I was running errands. Mm. Uh, was grocery stores. Got it. Yeah. So you're yeah. great. You're a great husband. Great dad. No, I I, I selfishly no no come on now that's we know that's side. Side's the best husband in the world. Husband? Yeah. It was dad. It was father. Not Now you're making a husband too? I just assumed it was both with you because every story we've ever had is, you know, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. Oh, so amazing. 
See, there you go. That was that was the most genuine thing you've ever said on the show. <laughs> then, if there's time, we'll talk a little bit about inflation, layoffs, and of course, Jeff Bezos. Why? He has a. Uh, he has some thoughts on how he manages things that Said really wants to break down. That I think is worth breaking down. Valuable. Don't walk it back. I made it sexy. It was sexy. But for our podcast listeners, whether that's on Apple or Spotify, please head over and leave us an honest five-star review. It really does a lot for the show. Or if you're watching this over on YouTube, make sure you subscribe, like. Wow, he did it on me this that time. That was a first sight cam pop. Yeah, and ring that notification bell. Make sure you do all the goody good sassafras. This is an incredibly strange show. Oh, no moist? Oh, that's right. The wow. See, you're out of practice, man. You're out of practice. The goody good moist sassafras. You got to do your intros non on your MDMA. own Non-MDMA. That's In right. Non-MDMA. Yeah, because that's what you, you tried to. Just because you endorse drugs, man. I did not. You told me to start using it. All right. The Kobisi letter gave us an interesting list of things happening this week, some of which have already started to shake up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Number one, Jolt's job data on Tuesday. Yeah, man, big deal, right? Job openings and labor turnover survey, right? Yeah, we got a consumer confidence reading on Tuesday as well. Mm -hmm. Followed by Wednesday's Fed interest rate decision. Right, that's because, because the meeting starts tomorrow. And it's usually a two-day meeting, mm -hmm. right? For reference, we are recording this on Monday, the 29th. Mm -hmm. So the first Fed meeting is largely expected to be a, a big non-event with the Fed doing effectively nothing and waiting for more data, but we will see. Then you're also going to have manufacturing PMI data on Thursday, January jobs reports on Friday, which we all know preemptively is going to be completely fucking bullshit. <laughs> exactly. Because that's what the job report is these days. It's just all lies. Hashtag blessed. Right. Then um, about 20% of the S&P companies report earnings this week. And uh, it's Monday. And we've already got the S&P at an all-time high. Mm -hmm. Not for the month, not for the year, all-time high. Yeah. So it, it's going to be an action-packed week ahead. And uh, if you're hearing the show after all of this, I hope that uh, I hope that the week didn't scare the shit out of you because we're going to give you some things to think about. Right. I mean, if there's ever been any proof that there's lag effects to what the Fed is trying to do, we've talked about it plenty of times on the show, when the Fed raises their interest rates to what they're doing, what, what are they trying to do? They're trying to slow down the economy. Look, they're trying to slow down the economy, but we're hitting record numbers in the S&P 500. Yeah, that's got to be really frustrating. They got to look at that and be like, man, when is this stuff going to start hitting for people to realize? <laughs> you know, this would normally be the segment where I take a shot at Neil Kashkari. And I totally realized something the other day. I've been doing a lot of Neil Kashkari shit talking. Uh-huh. And we, we're connected on LinkedIn. No, stop it. <laughs> yeah. Wait, what, what does it mean? So this is going to sound really bad. I don't even have a LinkedIn account. Yeah, I know. But what, is it, what does it mean to be connected you on LinkedIn? You can follow somebody or you can be connected. Like you actually like know each other and link up or you're like tangibly connected versus just following I mean, them. you have like mutual friends that you're like. It means that we have both mutually accepted each other's invitation to be seen as followers, I guess, whatever. I see. It, it's a more intimate digital connection if you want to consider it intimate, which is, sounds, it sounds really stupid when I explain it. Mm. <laughs> but suffice it to say, he does see my shit when he goes on LinkedIn, and I'm like, oh, that's probably. So I'm going to use this as my, um, as my public record. Right. I love you, Neil. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't go back. I didn't mean you had alopecia when I said that back then. Yeah. I was just hurt. Don't go back and listen to 90% of the episodes. Yeah, those, those, those weren't me. Mm -hmm. That was a rune <laughs> editing the show when I wasn't here. Yeah. 
All right, back to the Kobisi letter. One interesting post which really caught my eye. Uh, it was breaking news at the time. I still think it's very valuable. 14% of all commercial real estate loans and 44% of office building loans are now in, quote, negative equity, end quote. In other words, the debt is now greater than the property value on all of these properties. Mm-hmm. They're underwater, kids. Right. That's not so good. That's not good. And has there been a time where uh, the debt on these commercial real estate uh, properties have been in negative equity like this before? Not to this extent that I'm aware of. There was certainly some time in the Great Recession where there was a lot of negative equity in homes. Okay. In commercial real estate, there certainly was a period as well where you had like um, the kind of the Amazon or digital revolution, if you will. Okay. Where a lot of people were going, okay, that store really should be an online digital storefront. And there was kind of a conversion out of traditional retail. Yes. I think retail specifically took a hit and there was a little bit of that, but it wasn't such a contagion fear because you can take other types of retail and kind of plug them in. So this is really scary for the, the banks that are out there. Um, does it even get into regional banks? So re- I know regional yeah. banks. Currently, they- U.S. banks hold over $2.9 trillion of CRE debt, the majority of which is held by regional banks. And I, when I looked it up, it was actually Goldman Sachs had it at 80% of this debt is held by regional banks. Yeah, there's a couple different interpretations here. I tend to believe that about 80% of it winds up at regional community banks, but I think that's not by dollar i think that's if i think it's by number of transactions if i were to guess but is it, okay there's, there's a little bit of a disparity there but so so th- this guy it has to be pretty scary for the banks right because you remember when banks are putting the money or giving these loans out right mm-hmm. i mean their bank they're they're making sure that the the borrower has enough skin in the game so where they can't just walk away from the property and they could have never imagined for this a swing the way that it did. So well, keep in mind too, though, that, that the value for these properties is driven by the income approach to value. So as an investor, you don't buy these properties for any other reason that they're going to make you money. Right. Or if it's owner occupied, you can use it to make yourself money as an operating business in the space. Yes. And what Chris means by that is the value is driven by the income approach, meaning how much money do these properties uh, generate, right? For as income, because that's what they're usually operated as versus like the single family homes that most people go out and buy, it's driven by the market and what it could sell for. So in other words, if in fact, like according to this, office buildings, uh, office building prices are down 40% from their highs and CRE specific, uh, sorry, CRE as a whole, the entire commercial real estate sector, which includes industrial properties, retail properties, multifamily apartment complexes, office buildings, there's a huge array of different types in there. That's down 20%. Now that's getting pulled down right, by that 40%. But if office prices are down 40%, and let me give you guys a little kind of like peek into the how this works. If it's down 40%, these properties are not making money. They are losing money. So mm-hmm. to Saeed's point, not only do you not have any equity, any skin left in the game because you've lost that value, but now it's costing you money to keep this property that is not cash flowing, that you're having to cover that shortage every single month. Yes. Because there's less tenants in there. There's more vacancy in, in the sector. So it's very, very impactful. Right. And if multifamily is included in some of these numbers – Right, that's got to be skewing the numbers a little bit too. Uh, yeah, it is skewing the numbers. I think multifamily is holding it up, frankly. It's yeah, propping exactly. these numbers up because we talked about it. We know some local areas around here where some office buildings were were down somewhere near sixty percent, sixty percent down, seventy percent down, depending on the types of property. Now, keep in mind too, with office buildings, there's a couple different variants of office building. You got like that major dense stuff where there's different businesses on every single floor. Right. You've got single tenant office buildings where it's just one office that that's in there. 
You've got a lot of you know small office space that, that medical can be office up. buildings. Medical office buildings are a great example. There's specialized office buildings to that point. You could have medical. You could have dental specifically. Mm-hmm. You know, and you have a lot of dentists that all get together and they form like this place where you have inflow and outflow of patients and people who want this type of practice. Right. So there's a lot of different types here, a lot of different sectors that are all impacted slightly differently. But this is a very, very, very worrisome thing for the community. And frankly, this could absolutely, in and of itself, trigger a recessionary economy. Even if this were the only thing to go wrong in the economy, and it's certainly not the only thing that could, that could go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. So, Ruben, if you could scroll down, Daddy going to speed session this week because I want to give you all the values, and I don't want GF to feel like the 75% was in just our banter, okay? My, my wife's also going to appreciate this. She seemed to agree with Jeff a little bit. Really? So she your did. wife is Jeff? <laughs> my, my wife is not Jeff, but she did agree with Jeff. That we get that we have too much fun. What 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 is her statement exactly? No, she was like, I I appreciate your guys' banter, but she's like, ten minutes into the show, it felt like a lot for her. I was like, I think that's what the people want. You know, I am so hurt right now. <laughs> I'm just gonna continue on. She doesn't like to hear us having a good time. I know that's what it is. That's what like, it, it is, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's supposed to be work. goddammit. it. Yeah, you said you're you're yeah. working. All right, from Business Insider, the inventor of Wall Street's favorite recession indicator predicts a slowdown this year and slams the Fed for making things worse. Yes, that was all the title. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got some paragraphs here. I thought this was really fascinating. These are all not all uh, linear from the article, just full disclosure. Uh, I picked different paragraphs for relative points. Okay. So Campbell Harvey, a finance professor at Duke University, who I admittedly had not heard of, was interning at a copper mine in the 1980s when he discovered that an inverted yield curve accurately predicts recessions. He recently told the Julia Roach Show. Mm. There's a whole lot to What, copper mine? What show was this? You need to intern at at a copper miner? Like, (laughs) I'm very confused, but let's just... Okay, if you're interning as a copper miner... You're thinking about the yield curve? (laughs) Like life must have been very different in the early 80s. You know what I'm just saying? The 10-year and the three-month treasury yields inverted before eight of the last recessions with no false positives. Matter of fact, this is not in the article, but I know that it's predicted every single recessionary economy since 1955, baby. Damn, look at you. I know because somebody recently accused me of plagiarizing. I was going to bring that up. I was going to bring that up right now. This is the problem. We should address this right here, right now. So uh, you get you get quoted a lot on articles, and lately you've been getting a lot of love. Architectural Digest, even just today, yeah, twenty five articles in the last thirty days, give or take. Right, and I mean, topics like this of the economy right now. This is what's you know really important. Actually, um, I went to uh, the after school program mm-hmm. uh, at my kid's school to get my kids enrolled in like one of the days for after school, right? Yep. Then watch them, and um, there's a wait list. Right. She's like, it's crazy because, you know, everybody had to start going back to the office and it was literally it's completely filled. Yeah. Right. And um, and she says, it's really sad. And we're going to have to up our prices next year. And she starts talking to me about the economy. That's and, awkward. And I'm like, don't make me do this. <laughs> this is a game to you, woman. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> don't, don't make me go there. Did you roll your sleeves up? <laughs> no, no, I did. I was like, oh, I know it's crazy. Right. I just left it there. I didn't even say anything. I was like, I know, I know, I, I see, I see the pain too. I kind of work in the industry, but <laughs> I gotta talk about this for a living. Side Omar, Mister Humble, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris, you get asked these same questions. So here, here's the part that people don't understand. Okay, like if 
CBS is running an article on home prices, yeah. right? There are likely to be other outlets like Go Banking Rates or uh, Today or Market Watch or somebody doing the same thing. There's yeah. a reason why you, as a journalist, want to talk about this and find it to be newsworthy. Right. Or just go on YouTube and type in, what is a recession? Everyone's talking about the same Everybody's thing. Everybody's talking about it. So I will literally write something or cite something, right, probably six or seven times. Right. Here's the problem is that they don't tell you when they're going to use an article, when they're going to publish the article. They tell you nothing. And nine times out of ten, you rarely hear if they actually use it. You just get an alert from Google, which tracks your name. Mm -hmm. So if I give 100 interviews, they're probably going to be about 45 that get published quoting me. Okay. What part of what I said gets quoted? I don't know. Mm -hmm. a, lot of these, a lot of these journalists will say, uh, I don't want any AI-generated responses if it's in writing or if it's a verbal fair. conversation. It's That's different. Fair. And then I don't want a repetitive... Like, I don't want something to use for somebody else before. There's only so many ways you can cite data. Right. That's just fact. Data's data, baby. Right. So most recently, a journalist called me, uh, accused me of plagiarizing because two sentences. We, I, so of the percentage of the entire article, this was about 3%. Mm -hmm. Okay. Everything else passed his whatever AI plagiarism test. One was a definition. The def, the, I use the definition of inverted yield curve when long-term treasuries yeah. are you know lower than the short-term treasuries. Right? right, that's an inverted yield curve. Right, whatever. Excuse me, plagiarism. Okay, that's the definition. He's like, you didn't set the source. I'm like, I'm sorry, I memorized the definition. I'm an attorney. <laughs> yeah, okay? exactly. The second one was from an article that quoted me, but I can't use the same language with two journals. And I'm like, number one, I didn't know that they used it. Number two, they didn't properly cite me so did you clear your name with this with this reporter Nah, i mean we we talked it out and i was like look i apologize i didn't realize you know this isn't this, this but uh, you said you'll fuck his ass up <laughs> i feel like you're really you're really visceral right now i was you're mad, holding dude. back right now <laughs> i was mad so i i published a a public statement citing it specifically you, <laughs> i'm not gonna be caught later on yeah exactly I'm not gonna have you know somebody from the all-in podcast fact checking me mm -hmm. uh plagiarism is kind of a, a a buzzword in society right now because there's a lot of people who are using AI in a way that normally you couldn't have done this before to really check and see if things have been plagiarized. Exactly. People going back to MIT papers, Harvard professors, and just checking all their work and they're finding plagiarism rampant. And here's what I'll say about that. Honest opinion. I know this can be a bit of a singe to some people. The idea of somebody writing something truly unique in this day and age, that's a fallacy. Right. Okay? And I understand if you're taking somebody's content and you're stealing paragraphs, mm -hmm. That's that's plagiarism. Yeah. If you're wording things the same way because you studied a lot of their content. That's the thing, right? You we're, know, we're all consuming so much content. All the contents. All the contents at, at any given day, right? I mean, I've actually heard of comedians, like, in order for them to stay true because in the, in their industry, mm -hmm. right, it's it's sacred, right? God forbid you even take a premise yeah, away no. from, from somebody. So what they, they have to, like, refrain from even watching somebody else's content even if it's like their buddies yeah because it's like they're afraid of getting influenced by something they said and they don't know if like did i come up with that premise or did i hear that before right so it's it's almost virtually it's virtually impossible yeah so i got a little butt hurt and here i am but uh <laughs> let's let's get back to my buddy campbell mm -hmm. harvey this is a quote from campbell harvey the former copper miner mm -hmm. the model is forecasting lower economic growth in 2024 and i believe that will be realized, Harvey said, predicting a slowdown this quarter that will continue into the summer. He suggested there wasn't a recession last year because demand was buoyed by gobs of government stimulus and as well as households topping 
their pandemic savings, tapping their pandemic savings. It wouldn't be a show if I didn't fuck something up. <laughs> and releasing their pent-up demand for things like shopping and traveling. Yeah. There was a lot of sexual innuendo in the references there. It took <laughs> a lot of self-restraint. So many. You know, tapping, pent-up, buoyed, releasing, buoyed. These are words that he said. I'm just reading. Exactly. Harvey said, it's too soon to say whether the current inversion of the yield curve is a false alarm, as mm -hmm. there is an average delay of 13 months between inversion and recession. Right, and some have gone as long as 21 months. Yes, that's correct. Mm -hmm. But he did warn the indicator's predictive power might be at risk, as it's so prominent now that company bosses might react to it by conducting early layoffs and taking other precautions that could slow economic growth in the short term and prevent a full-blown recession later. Yeah, so something that a lot of corporations are doing right now, instead of laying off, they're cutting hours. So that, that could be one reason why you may not be seeing some of the some uptick in unemployment mm -hmm. because it took a lot of companies so long to get you know built back up again, to staff up again, yeah. that they're afraid to fully lay people off. I don't know, man. There's been a lot of layoffs. A lot. No, I know, especially in our space and in the tech space. Yeah. But look, we're still at 3.7%, right? You know what I thought about the other day, mm. just anecdotally? Layoffs in our space, tech space, right? Yeah. So I was I was kind of going down this mental like gymnastics with myself, and I thought to myself, that's weird. The Magnificent Seven, which effectively are all tech companies. I mean, Tesla being in there, let's just lop them into a tech company, right? Right. Are all tech companies are literally leading the way on the S and P? Yes, they are the seven best performing stocks, and hence the magnificent seven. Mm -hmm. They're all tech companies. Yep. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. Let's talk about banking. JP Morgan had their best fucking year ever for earnings last year. I think they brought in 49 billion in profits. So yeah, exactly. So I'm sitting here thinking, like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. The 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 places that had layoffs already are now having record profits. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I remember when uh, Meta was really going through it, and they had like their several rounds of layoffs, and it was yeah. planned. And um, they started to announce their layoffs, and after they went through like their first round, literally the stock price was went up the following week. Well, because the market knows that you're doing things to protect the shareholder mm -hmm. and return more value, right? Even though them. they weren't, they didn't. When you look at the number of employees that were actually laid off, it wasn't that significant. Right? Yeah, but keep in mind too, Meta and a lot of these tech companies in general, just from a tech perspective had grown and grown and grown and they never really worried about cutting back on expenses it was all about like this perpetual growth for so long right that this first time of doing the perceived quote right thing to right size the ship mm -hmm. was relatively unheard of right so uh, it was it was a big sign to the market that they were going to do all the things right and odun can you uh pull up that uh uh cnbc article from snp right there yep so this kind of goes into into what Mr. Campbell Harvey is that was that his name Campbell Harvey baby what he was saying corporate debt default soared eighty percent in two thousand twenty three could be high again this year S and P says so um, this from written by Jeff Cox love Cox CNBC Jeff Cox honestly CNBC is fucking with us you got Dickler yeah Jeff Cox what's going on they're all pseudonyms they know what they're doing right yeah this is intentional. Um, the number of companies that failed to make required payments on their debt totaled 153. So that number, not alarming, not so. it's not very large, right? But when you look at the rate at which it increased, right, that's up from 85 last year. That's an increase of 80%. Mm -hmm. You got to think that with corporate debt, 
right, adjusting in the coming year, right? Companies are reluctant to come out and refinance or get out there and refinance because they want to see what the Fed's going to do. They're waiting for the Fed to potentially cut rates so that they can, you know, apply for new loans or refinance their debt or whatever the case is. Because you got to remember, corporate debt is not 30-year debt. Like, you know, most consumers out there, the biggest debt that they're ever going to get is their mortgage on their home. But their debt is typically around five years, right? Somewhere within that range. And yeah. some, sometimes if it's a revolving line, it's one to two years. Three to five is probably what I would say is probably the most common for some of that stuff. Two years, revolving lines, one to two years max. Right, three to five. And from the Federal Reserve, there's about $13.7 trillion in corporate debt. These are big numbers. These are big numbers that are just waiting on the silence, and people are waiting to see what's going to happen. So you can only imagine in the coming years, not only do you have commercial real estate maturities coming online this year and next year, that's going to be massive, but you got corporate debt to worry about too in a potentially downward economy. Yeah, and it's all it's all very scary. And to add into these scary things, uh, let's go charting, shall we? Let's head to that business article, uh, business insider article on the stock market crash. An expert warns of a potential tech bubble 2.0, a sell-off ahead. Uh, Arun, if you could uh, pull a little more to the right there, all I see is uh, ads. Every episode, he fucks with me a little bit. He's doing it on purpose. On to the right, brother. On to the right, so I can see it. There you go. There you go. Thank there you, you go. We appreciate you, bro. A little bit more. A little more for daddy. Come on. There you go. There you go. Oh, too much. There you go. That's perfect. See, this is why I have you here is because you love me and I love you. Okay. So uh, John Wolfenberger says the stock market today resembles a tech bubble leading up to 2000. He is a founder of a company called bullandbearprofits.com. Very long username. But uh, Let's just talk about some of the charts here. Obviously, he's expressing concerns over something like the Magnificent Seven that we talked about. So the first chart that he's bringing up is really the performance of the Magnificent Seven versus everybody else. Yeah. Everybody else in this instance is really the Russell 2000, uh, the Russell Midcaps, the rest of the S&P, and the Russell 1000. Don't need to worry about what those are. Suffice it to say, the Magnificent Seven has significantly outperformed everybody else. This is so crazy, man. It is a wild difference. And if they are literally carrying the market. And when I mentioned this to, to somebody in our comment section, and I said, remove the Magnificent Seven and look mm -hmm. at the, you know, the market as a whole, they're like, oh, of course. You can skew your data however you want it. And I'm like, no, just look at the data, man. Seven yeah. companies should not be carrying the market. Exactly. And seven tech companies sounds a whole hell of a lot right. like a tech bubble. Let's go back to the article of Rune one more time. Uh, going down the charts here, uh, we have another one, the Schiller P.E. ratio for the S&P 500. Don't really need to worry about what it is, but it's basically price to equity. Mm -hmm. uh, this ratio uh, was very, 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 very high uh, prior to the tech bubble bursting. And it is the second highest it has ever been in history. It was slightly higher to the tech bubble. But uh, I will say that being this elevated has only happened really three times in history. And that's a pretty significant indicator. Just for the record, the first time was in 1929. A little time called the Great Depression, kids. Wow. that's Also a stock market crash. Now, I want to be clear here. We have gotten into this ideology that all recessionary economies are the same. Mm. They are not all the same. But I will say 1929 Great Depression was a stock market crash. Mm-hmm. 2001 was a market crash led by, of course, the fintech space. Yes. And here we are again, the third time it has ever been this elevated, again with seven tech companies leading the way. Right before the great correction. 
God damn. We coined that. No. If, it's not, if it's not, I'm not going to take any credit you know, for that. I, I just yeah. feel like for the Lori, it might be yeah. helping on the resume <laughs> to give you like a okay. little bit of the Thank burn. You. I appreciate you. I'm giving that to you. That's yeah. my love. I'll let you, yeah, I'll you, let you have that. I'll let you introduce me. Yeah. When you slam it down, you just got to be like, Chris did this. Yeah. You know, like, you know, give me some kind of hand gesture or something. All right. Um, okay. So some of the top five largest weights in the S&P, you add them all together, right? The percentage of the S&P total returns for 2023, the top five companies make up 49.7% of the total returns of the S&P. That's what we like to call a concentration, my friends. And if you don't know about the S&P or what that means, let's just say if five companies out of 500 <laughs> make up 49.7% of the total returns, yeah, whoa, 1%. <laughs> Arun, can you do a good, like, whoa, like a Scooby-Doo kind of thing? Don't, don't. Fuck you. <laughs> Sounds spot on. There you go. And from, from more perspective, the top 10 companies... Make up 60.8% mm. of the total returns for the S&P 500. And just to just because I like to say the word exasperate, just to exasperate the situation and make it even worse. It's a sexy word, though. Top 15 companies make up 64.6% of the total returns of the S&P 500, which means we know the top seven are tech companies. In this case, the top five making over half. Right. Top 10 do include some non-tech companies, 60%, 60.8%. Mm. Okay, if the rest of 500 companies, 490, they're literally hanging on by a thread, man. They're they're in church, trying to get some Jesus. Some of, some of these companies in the S and P 500, I mean, on the on the bottom tail, have to be somewhat of a zombie company. I mean, not. I mean, you're in the S and P 500. It's I know, pretty, pretty I know, but I mean, you're bar- if you're barely making it, man. Like, what's going to happen when some of your debt, you know? There'll be a, a, a big shift in who's in the S&P 500. Companies will shift in and shift out. Right. The, the problem is people don't really understand the scale and size difference between some of these small caps and the mid caps. And I mean, it's a big difference. Yeah. Uh, cap refers to the capital, uh, the size of, of, the, of the structure, right? So right. the best way to tell is you can actually go to like Yahoo or something else and mm-hmm. click and you can see their uh, total market cap. Right. So how, you take all their shares and you multiply by the share price. There's some nuance there, but yeah. yeah. One more chart, Arun, if we don't mind going back to the article. There was one more I wanted to point out. Scroll down a little bit there. There you go. Tech bubble popped by my favorite three words. Chart two, tech bubble popped by rates, penetration, and or regulation. Only one of those is your favorite word. I know. Guess which one it was. Popped. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, this compares different countries and different things that pop the bubbles, uh, the history of asset bubbles. Obviously, Bitcoin being the most outlying thing here that's kind of crazy that kind of popped and dropped down. China, housing, the internet, all these things are on there. Fang, if you recall, prior to the Magnificent Seven, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, that was the old sexy term that you would hear right. uh, that led the market. Well, it's no longer Fang, right? Now it's the Magnificent Seven, oh, which is the place I, I blame the Avengers for this shit. The Magnificent Seven? What's going on here? I mean, it is a pretty dope name, bro. The Magnificent Seven? So what I will like to say here is that you also have AI. AI is the buzzword, man. Yeah, man. Everybody in the market is pimping AI. Yeah, when they're when they're literally on their like earning calls or they have they're giving out their guidance, they're dropping AI like a yeah. hundred times. That's the salt bay in the market right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like that's what they're dropping on their stock to make it, you know, because real if, sexy. because people think that if you're not utilizing it or 
taking notice or partaking in, in all this, and you're going to be left behind. So you got seven stocks leading the way. You got AI as one of these tech bubbles that could pop, right? Mm -hmm. Prior to that, you had Bitcoin, you had ARK. Don't even get me started on Kathy Wood. Just don't go there. You had biotech. Remember biotech? Mm -hmm. You had China. Had a big problem. China's got a huge problem right now. Evergrande. Oh, my God. Woo! Colorectal exam. <laughs> Liquidation. Yeah, Somebody in China was like, you know what? The best solution here is we just sell everything and say, fuck it. <laughs> China's largest builder. And by, I mean, largest builder is like an understatement. Yeah. There's right? ghost cities in China yeah. of developments that they built. By the way, they still have people's money to build them properties. Yeah. The it, way it, their whole system is structured and developed, maybe we can get into it on a future episode, is completely different than the way things are ran here. Yeah. And to, just to finish off this chart, the, the last two I want to talk about housing. Obviously, the Great Recession was the housing bubble bursting. Before, before that, the internet, the internet bubble bursting was the fintech bubble burst. So, if you look at the things that have led up from 2013 all the way to we are where we are today in 2024, you've got a lot more bubbles that have been created in this narrow window of time. Okay. And to me, that speaks to the frequency and traffic of money, of information, this hypersexualized distracted culture that we have is impacting the market. Mm -hmm. Everything is sexy. Everybody jumps into the sexy thing. You know, Bitcoin, NFT, AI, it's just, it's just boom, 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 boom. Right. And it's propping the market up with money that's not there anymore. Yeah, man. So let's jump on to the next article. Mohammed Al-Rain, my guy, my gangster, he's back. He's back, baby. He's back in a big way, just co-signing the shit out of me. I mean, he didn't say my name. Right. But he called me and said, hey, man, I just want you to know that I might have worked at PIMCO, but you're the PIMCO. He's not not just work at Pimco, right? He was the head dog, right? Yeah, <laughs> he's kind of a big deal. I mean, kind of. You got it. You got an unbelievable mustache, though. <laughs> Mohamed El Rain, the S and P five hundred is back at record levels for the first time in two years, mind you. This is before today's new record level, right? This is the third time, I believe. Information technology is the only one of the index's eleven sectors that can say the same. Mm. Just to be clear. Of the S&P 500, 500 different companies. There are 11 different sectors. The only one that is reaching levels like that right. is technology. That's, yeah. That, if that's not signaling a tech bubble, I don't know what is. This is from the Wall Street Journal article on, and I'm quoting here, the S&P 500 rallied to records on the back of just one sector. Hashtag tech. Hashtag stocks. Keep climbing. While the other 10 sectors of the index are trading at average of 15% below their all-time highs. So I know Jerome Powell has made it a point in meeting after meeting after meeting to stress that valuations are out of whack. That some of these values are really inflated, right? And I think that if everyone's looking at when is the Fed and the FOMC going to begin to cut during this cycle... It's going to be on the backs of the labor market. Whenever unemployment starts to tick up, that's when I think they'll start to accelerate their cuts. Because if he's going out of his way to mention that values are inflated, when this pops, this might not be enough for him to be like, no, I told you it was inflated. I told you it was overvalued. So I'm, we're not going to cut on this. Or we will still, but it won't be as aggressive. Yeah, and uh, I hate to say this. I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say it. 
But Janet Yellen was on television today saying the Fed needs to cut rates in this meeting. They don't understand this is not going to stop when they cut rates. It's going to decelerate when they start cutting rates. And if they don't stop that now, the momentum will carry this into a recession. That's a very nice stop right now. That's a very nice way for her to shift blame. It's a very nice way to shift blame. And it's very awkward for me to agree with her about anything. Yeah. So in my mind, I was like, yeah, she, she has a point. And my body, my body was going, no, but who, no. But who got us no. into this mess? Huh? Who got us into this mess? Uh, I think we all share responsibility, Saeed. Stop it. Don't don't point don't point the finger. I blame Janet Yellen. Oh, the witch. Oh, you, I knew you were racist. The wicked witch. What? <laughs> hey, what? We can't, be, we can't be doing this shit, bro. What? Don't stop. What did I say? I'm far is, from is, that. Is Janet Yellen the same ethnicity as you? Yeah, I'm Caucasian. No, you were Afghan. You were Asian, sir. I, I check Caucasian. You were Asian. I check Caucasian. Then you're lying to yourself. No. That's part of the problem. We yeah, I was, I was very put off by Janet Yellen, and and I agreed with everything she said today. I, I well, not everything, but I agreed with most of what she was trying to insinuate. Mm. Um, so I use Mohammed Al Rain here as a way to say, look, smarter people than us uh, have this interpretation. Mm-hmm. It's not just these two articles. It's it's some very well known and respected economists. Uh, and and you know, look, let's let's take a moment to appreciate. Some of the things we've seen this year. Layoffs announced over the past three months. Just three. Okay. Twitch, 35% of the workforce. Hasbro, 20% of the workforce. Spotify, 17% of the workforce. Levi's. I mean, who buys Levi's anymore? 15% of the workforce. Xerox. I mean, I blame you, bro. Fabletic. 15% of the... This is your fault. Kevin Hart (laughs) swears by these. Okay? Kate Hudson does too. And you know what? I would not mind being Kate Hudson either. Okay. Okay. I respect it. I respect it. Keep going. It's her company, you know, right? Who did you copy and paste this, or did you type this out? Isn't Xerox with an X? To, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Xerox, fifteen percent of the workforce. Uh, Qualtrics, I don't even know what that is fourteen percent of the workforce. Wayfair, thirteen percent of the workforce. Duolingo, come on, ten percent of the workforce. You can't even learn a foreign language now. I mean, if they have to cut ten percent of the workforce just to sponsor the show, I'm down. Washington Post, 10% of the workforce. eBay, 9% of the workforce. Business Insider, 8% of the workforce. Charles Schwab, 6%. BlackRock, 3%. Citigroup, 20%. Pixar, 1,300 employees. And I saved the best for last. Didn't even put it on the list. Sports Illustrated completely shut down. I did not know this. Shut down. Sent him an email saying, hey, we're laying off everybody. What? Gone. Bye. Who's the parent company? Is it... They were bought by like private equity, I think. I think really? They, yeah, I don't remember the whole thing. They're just shutting the whole thing down? Yeah, they sent an email saying, hey, we're having layoffs. It's everyone. Damn, man. I grew yeah. up on Sports Illustrated. No more, no more Sports Illustrated. Damn. Mm-hmm. That's sad. It is. I thought you guys so are many com- aficionados. This is how fucked up it is. You guys have no, like, you pay no attention to it. The only reason you like it is because you reminisce about what right. it was. Yeah, nostalgia. It definitely, definitely nostalgia. That's really, really sad, man. Um, I didn't know that they were owned by private equity. So at least I think that's don't call me. But so again, just for context, when we said the jobs reports bullshit, okay? Yeah. yeah. This is why. In 2022 and early 2023, we saw 300,000 layoffs, but they were almost entirely in tech companies in the last two years. Mm. Okay. That that's astonishing. Now yeah. we're seeing layoffs across industries, all industries, as we kick off 2024. And I would like to take a little pat on the back for my Nobel laureate co-host here and say, hey. We called this shit as a rolling recession. We said it would f- affect other industries in mid-2023. Yeah. 
I mean, at this point, someone's going to dig up some shit a couple, you know, hundred years from now. They're going to find all this technology they don't understand. We're going to be basically like cavemen, right? (laughs) But they will tell a story of a man who could see the future like Nostradamus. And his name will be Saeed. No, his name will be Mr. Nahibi. I don't even know how to say my own last name. It's awkward. (laughs) It's awkward. So um, I did some digging here. So in in a booming economy, just for people to understand the magnitude of some of these layoffs and what's going to need to happen in order for the Fed to actually get worried, okay? In a booming economy, right, there's roughly 200,000 people that lose their job weekly, okay? Weekly. Damn, that's a lot. Yeah, just because they don't file for unemployment right away, we may not hear about it. We may not know about it, right? Because we got to remember those the JOLTS report that shows 8 million job openings, right? I'm really interested in, like, digging in deeper to find out if— some of these are multiple postings. If some of these positions have been filled or if companies are no longer looking to fill the position, but they just haven't taken it down, right? So furthermore on that on that point, in a booming economy, one and a half million people get laid off a month. Mm. A month. A so what what is the Fed going to need to see? What numbers are the is the Fed going to need to see to reverse course quickly to get things back on track if this starts to uptick, right? I would say to them, they, they've got to stop looking at the jobs numbers right now. I think the jobs numbers have been proven inaccurate, number yeah. one. Number two, I think that just because traditionally speaking they, they were hyper-focused on jobs, I think they take the win on jobs. I think they say, we've been unable to make a dent in jobs. But you've got other parts of the market mm-hmm. which are really concerning. Right. The government can't keep going at the cadence that it's paying its own debt right now. Yeah. It's like a hockey stick straight up. You, you certainly can't have the repo market and lack of liquidity looming because that's going to affect banks and everybody else. You've got all sorts of other problems with consumer savings. Right. Inflation appears to have a two-handle. The core inflation, the number they track. The piece, so that's the one thing. Well, we won't dive into the uh, you know nitty-gritty details of it all, but PCE, the personal consumption expenditures, that uh, inflation index came in at 2.6% for the headline figure, and 2.9% for core inflation. So this came in right before their meeting, which is a big deal. So something positive, but still not enough for them to cut rates, we don't believe. Erwin, that's the third article there on the tabs, top and middle. Oh, yeah, right right there, there in the go. middle. Yeah. Uh, from CNBC, Fed's favorite inflation gauge rose 0.2% in December and was up 2.9% from a year ago. So all, all they really need to know here is that it's, look, we're in that two-handle territory, but it's interesting how this is different from the CPI index, right? Mm-hmm. That is also being tracked, which still has, I think, a four handle it or does. a high three handle. There's a gap starting to form there. Right. Yeah. But the Fed made it very clear that this is the one that they care about. I know. They're probably going, fuck. I should have used the other one. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, so a lot of companies are having to plan and be strategic with what they do moving forward. And something that I wanted to get your take on, mm. right, is... I don't know if you saw this, but uh, Jeff Bezos, right, made an appearance on the Lex Friedman podcast. I didn't see it. You told me about it. And it was an, it was a, first of all, you got to appreciate Lex Friedman for who he is. You know, I've never actually seen uh, or listened to a full episode of his podcast. He's amazing, man. Okay. He's, he's, he's kind of like, he kind of has like a slow, 
He's 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 a draw question. by trade. He's he's an engineer by trade. So right. he's he's very he's he has a very interesting way of um focusing and attacking these interviews. But he comes off very humble and very genuine. But something that Bezos said in this interview that I really wanted to get your take on and maybe I thought was valuable for the listeners because I know you don't really like to get into a lot of the stuff that you've done and accomplished because you you want to portray this very humble, modest um, personality, okay? Not true. But, My house is smaller than yours. But uh, something that you, you have done is you did attend the Yale School of Management, right? I did, two and, years. Two years, right? Yeah. And I thought this was fascinating because, you know— Long, long time ago, when you were much younger, <laughs> that's hurtful. You started off in a position similar to mine, where you were an underwriter, mm-hmm. right? Where you were focusing on, you know, a specific deal, and you were working on the numbers, and you were really studying the formula. And I think what you have mentioned before on the show is what got you interested in this is you got to see how the rich get rich, yeah. or, or at least one of the ways they use. It was a legal way to figure out how everybody's making money, right? It's learning the game of monopoly in, in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then along the way, as you continued on your career path, you had to shift focus, Yeah. right? And now, given your current position, being an executive at the bank that we're at, um, as the chief operating officer, you're now looking at things from, you know, a bird's eye view, you know, from 30,000 feet. And you're really, I mean, maybe you're not, you're very still much in tune with the numbers and understanding what we're looking at, what we're doing, what our guidelines are. But I think you have to spend more of your time looking at, you know, the guidance of the company, right? And something that I, what, what I heard Jeff Bezos say is, if only if you could tee this up and play it, please, I thought the way he approaches his meetings, I'm like, man, this guy started off similar to you where he grew this company himself. <laughs> but I'm, I'm thinking, I'm like, look at the kind of shit that he's thinking of and talking about now. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of this might be a little PR, right? But also, I think, it's, I think he's being genuine and honest here when he says um, his approach to meetings. Odin, can you play this, please? You want to set up your culture so that the most junior person can overrule the most senior person if they have data. Um, There are little things you can do. So, for example, in every meeting that I attend, I always speak last. And I know from experience that if I speak first, even very strong-willed, highly intelligent, high-judgment participants in that meeting will wonder, well, if Jeff thinks that, I came in this meeting thinking, one thing, but maybe I'm not right. In fact, ideally, let's try to have the most junior person go first and the second, then try to go in order of seniority so that you can hear everyone's opinion in a kind of unfiltered way. Because we really do, we actually literally change our opinions. If somebody who you really respect says something, it makes you change your mind a little. Right? And I, so I, I, I listened to this and I saw this when he first came out and I heard him say, um, I like to speak last in a meeting. I thought to myself, wow, that's pretty fucking arrogant. He just wants to be the big dog that slaps his dick on the table at the end. Like, yeah, I said it. Right? And that's it. Wow. Right? But. That, that's a view. When you, hear, when you hear him break it down, you're like, oh, well, that makes complete sense. And it's interesting now his view and his look like on how to grow this company. And he's implementing things to make sure that, you know, it's successful. And I wanted to get your take on that. Yeah, well, um. What's interesting is is when you move up the ranks in management, it's like progressive load, right? Like you you start off knowing your job or your goal, right? And then you hire people uh, or your business grows or your job gets promoted and you manage people. And then it's knowing your job and your goals and being able to teach these people and mentor them and lead them 
but at the same time know how to motivate the humans that are around you. I mean, there's annual reviews and things like that. And then you go a step higher up and you're like in this mid-level management space. And now you're not doing that work anymore. Your job is not to do the work that you started in. Your job is to manage the people and the product, the output, right? Mm -hmm. You're now in charge of the macro going in and going out. And then you get into like this executive level management position. And it was not uncommon for me growing up to not be able to speak to somebody in my job. There was, I wouldn't call it arrogance as much as it was just taboo to waste their time talking to you or whatever. I would get in elevators with other executives and they wouldn't even look in my direction or say a word to me. I was beneath them. They had their private parking downstairs and their private access and their high-end cars and and they were seen as people that you just could not connect with. And if you did, it was like, hey, how are you? And you were happy if they knew your name. And I always found that so fucking ridiculous. The reverence that people may have for you is he's right. Is that that respect or fear in a lot of corporations, it's fear-based. They don't want to lose their job. They don't want to piss you off. So they want to agree with you. Right? Mm -hmm. they, want you they want you to like them. Right. So they want to say things. And every once in a while, you get somebody. Keep the status quo. Yeah, it's very weird. So the, the farther you get in, in management, the more the human element really becomes relevant. Knowing how people respond, knowing how they interact. Uh, and there is a subset of people in the space who don't want to form a bond with colleagues that, that are their subordinates because they don't want that bond to be so close that it makes it easy for them to ask for more money. Mm -hmm. Because that isn't in the company's best interest all the time to do. There is a subset of people who think the closer I am to you, uh, that we feel free to speak to one another and you feel free enough to even ask those kind of things, the more likely you are to be honest with me. I don't necessarily agree that that's more likely, but I'll say that, that he's right. Um, I wouldn't characterize it the way that he would. I would characterize it like, um, if I walk into a meeting, I should be listening a whole hell of a lot more than I should be directing. Right. You pay great people to do great things for you. Mm -hmm. If you're running a division, um, you're running all the loans or lending, and you're on the underwriting side, and you're running the entire underwriting group, you're in the day-to-day. -day. I may have done it for years, decades. I may know the nuances, but you're in the job because I trust you. Right, but I know you too. Mm -hmm. So I know it's, it may be hard to let some of that stuff go. 100%. So is it something that you just you just got to, like, rip the Band-Aid off and just trust the process and just kind of hope that you made the right decision by putting the right person in place? Or, no, you know you vetted this person out well enough to know, like, no, it's in good hands and I can now go. You don't always know that. Uh, you know, there are some instances where I've gotten to pick a successor, and that's always been good. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been other instances where you hire somebody and you, you kind of roll the dice. Right. Uh, and I've been very, very fortunate that, I've had the opportunity to work with some great people. There are some exceptions where I've been forced to hire people or I made a bad judgment call. Certainly when I was younger, I made a lot more of those. I've found that the more cavalier and honest I am with somebody up front, like I'll cuss in interviews. I will fucking run somebody to the ringer. I will tell them, hey, like if you're fucking sensitive, like I'm not the guy. Yes. Because I will fucking come in and tell you how it is and that's it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I know that rarely happens. But I have to know that you can take it when it does happen. Right. It's not malicious. It's just there are some times where I understand, to give you some context, okay? So at some point, you get to the level that I'm at where not only are you worried about the employees constantly, and I am, every single employee and their families and their dependency on the job 
it matters to me. Right. Every single shareholder matters to me. But their interests are not always aligned. Sometimes the shareholder needs to make more money or similar situated to other companies of your size, which means you've got to let employees go at some point and have reductions in force like a lot of companies have been doing. Right. So you sacrifice people for the greater good of the company. Now, that is really difficult to do, but somebody has to make that decision and somebody has to implement that decision because at the end of the day, my fiduciary responsibility is to the company, to the shareholders, to the board. Mm-hmm. I've got to execute on their strategic plan. And believe it or not, the board really comes up with a macro strategy. Okay. And it's my job to execute and carry out that strategy. Got it. And then report back on the things that I've done. Mm-hmm. So as much as people think like, oh, these, these high-ranking executives are untouchable, that's not true. The board will and can call them into question. Now, in the tech space, it's a little bit different. A lot of boards, like, for example, Meta, have been structured in such a way that you really can't ever fire uh, their CEO. Zuckerberg is there to stay. And that right. was a, a tech kind of thing. I do think that that really, unfortunately, it, it breaks the spirit of what a board's supposed to do from an oversight perspective. If you can't ever really stop your your CEO, all you can do is penalize you know him financially. Right. If you're one of the wealthiest people in the world, is that really a risk? Mm-hmm. So you can also it, see it from his point of view too, right? Um why like he grew this thing from the ground up and that this is he looks at this thing as it's his baby yeah but there's a big disconnect there founders rarely make good operators at scale yeah which is why i thought what sam altman did over at OpenAI was so commendable right because his board made up primarily of like an opposite view of what he had in mind mm-hmm. but right? that worked against him it did work against him but he he thought it was in the company's best interest it's very difficult, and people often think like, "Hey, if you if you're a bank and you have a board, they should all be bankers." No, no, no. It's rare you get a banker on the board, or you get like one seasoned banker, but you generally have somebody who's got accounting experience, legal experience, uh, maybe some real estate experience. You have different sectors to kind of diversify them. There's different committees on a board. There's there's the the compliance committee. There's oversight. There's nominating governance. There's all sorts of different committees. Right. That these individual board members will get together and work on. To, to help operate a company and make sure that it's got the proper governance and oversight and discipline. And, and, and But look, Bezos is absolutely right. If he walks into a room, he knows who he is. And because he knows who he is, he doesn't want to stop the information flow. Keep in mind, he doesn't run the day-to-day anymore. He's not there every single day. He's got a different approach to life I don't life think he's now. a CEO anymore, right? Yeah. Yeah. So because of that, he doesn't want to step in a room and change things. He wants people who actually do them to speak. Yeah. That's got to be a really hard transition, right? I mean... Yes, you did it on a company of our size. I mean, to do it on a company of his size over time, it seems I, I would I can't even imagine how challenging that would be. You know what's a more challenging thing? Hmm. Just for some perspective, Bob Iger leaving Disney in a oh, excellent position, revered as one of the best CEOs in the business, to come back to a company which is now being really blasted by its loyalists for being too woke or too left, and him trying to re-ingratiate himself into a system that he left one way mm-hmm. where now the world has changed around it and now he's got an activist board or activist investor coming after him and his board challenging if he's even the right guy for the job imagine how he feels right so it is complex i don't know if that i really answered your question per se but it is it is a lot more difficult and i'll tell you right now i lie awake many 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 nights many more than people realize thinking about things like wall street Mm-hmm. like earnings on a quarterly basis, like where the direction of the company is going, little things I can do to improve value. And it, it's it's a never-ending never conversation. And I will say this, 
when the market's great and things are, everybody's making a ton of money, it's a lot less stress. Of course. But frankly, you have people like me in the position that I'm in to do the things that I can do for times like this. Right. And that's, that's where you test your mettle. Either you, you do well and things improve, or you do badly and they don't. And you have to accept that you were in a position to do something about it at the time. Right. And yeah, that is something that I feel like me, me just knowing you and the proximity that we have, understanding that the only time you have away from the company is when your eyes are shut and you're sleeping. Otherwise, when you're up, phone's ringing until we go to sleep at night, you're answering emails. Right. Yeah. And it's like, that's something that, you know, quite frankly, you guys don't get enough credit for. You know, and I, I will, <laughs> I will kind of leave it with this. Um, I, I didn't, I don't see myself in the role that I'm in and, it, and it's not humility when I talk to people. It's, it's just maybe you, you once said that you, you got on the show and every once in a while you felt weird talking about all these things because you feel like it was the imposter syndrome, like a little bit of imposter syndrome. Right? right. So I feel that a lot when it comes to the job, I'm still the same kid who grew up with a bad FICO score, right? Who had nothing and didn't want to be back, go back to being poor. And I'm still the kid who looked at all these things that I have now and aspired to have them. And I don't want to lose them. And I don't want my son to ever feel the way that I felt. And every single day I'm making these decisions, I'm still the same person I was when I was an underwriter. It's just that my job now is different. I'm underwriting the business every single day. There you go. Uh, but it, it's, um, I would be lying if I didn't say I constantly worry if I can ever be hired. If I, I don't know that need, need, I don't know that I need to work for another company ever again in my life. I, I don't really have to. I would. I always wanted to to see if I could do more, and I never thought that I'd be in the position that I'm in. And now I kind of want to know what could I work for another publicly traded company? Could I change sectors? Would somebody hire me based on my experience? Because unfortunately, what I know now is my experience has led me to a point where there aren't a lot of jobs for people like me anymore. And I'm not complaining. It's just there's a lot of people who are just not going to hire me. Right. Yeah. So their fears, they're all still there. They're just different. Mm -hmm. So Got it. Yeah, no, that's something that I just really wanted to make sure that maybe we can touch more on because I feel like you you saw and learned so much during your time at Yale. Yeah. I mean, there's so many people that you interacted with that I feel like – there's a lot there, at Yale. I mean, we should. I could do an entire episode on the things that I learned, the people that I met, and the conversations that I had. Jeff Sonnenfeld read that ran that program. Uh, he was a former Harvard professor, now at Yale, runs their School of Management, uh, their, their CEO summit there, which is spectacular. Mm -hmm. um, I, I really nothing but amazing things to say about the team there. Uh, I met a lot of great people. Uh, Roger Lipson, who's been on the show early, early, early days, uh, really helped kind of mentor me and see things in a different way. And these are people who have been around Fortune 500 companies, CEOs constantly. And the CEO Summit's a really crazy thing. If you ever look it up, look up Yale CEO Summit. Like anybody who's anybody is there. It's usually in New York. They get together and they talk about all the things they think. They can vote anonymously on the screen. And, and these opinions and these views are kept somewhat private as to who votes on what. But it's not uncommon for Jeff to pit two people like a home builder or a banker against each other to have a public debate. And the idea is what happens here stays here, right? Like this is not a... A public forum. Sarah Eisen is often there. I've seen her there multiple times. And this is, is, is almost like the Illuminati of business mm. where these people all get together and it's only because of Jeff that they come in to do these things. And I, it, it's astonishing. Some of the, some of the conversations yeah. I, that you, you listen into that you, the perspectives that you get, the world is a lot more complex than you realize. Yeah. Definitely stuff that we'll get into more in upcoming episodes. Let's get into these reviews. 
This from none other than Mr. Jordan Franks himself. Never heard of him. (laughs) (laughs) Former guest on the show, uh, Super Bowl champion, Mr. Jordan Franks. We appreciate you. He listens to us over at Spotify, so he could only leave us a five-star. But he felt like, listen, you guys, I want to make sure that um, I write something so you guys can read it. Which is incredibly kind. I know. You didn't have to do this. But uh, best place to leave a comment review for the podcast This is an exceptional podcast that has been instrumental in shaping my understanding of personal finance and complexities of the economic landscape nationally and globally. The hosts exhibit an ability to explain intricate topics, providing a comprehensive and holistic perspective on monetary matters. God damn. I didn't think he could get any sexier. Guy was built like a fucking unit back <laughs> in the day. I mean, a unit. The, the, the images of him like work, working out back in the day that yeah. I looked up inadvertently. I was like, well, I'm never going to attain that physique. Stud. Their engaging approach transforms the sometimes scary subject of finance and investing into easily digestible insights, making it accessible to a broad audience. Wow, Thank wow. you, Jordan. We appreciate you, brother. Thank you, man. He's given us way too much credit. He 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 knows the financial game uh, much better than he's letting on in that. Yeah. But, uh, you remember from that episode, he's like one of his mentors is the CFO of uh, the Chiefs. I was think it? so, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, he's got some good people in his corner. I am so glad that I don't have to read this one. It's long. <laughs> this one? Well, the review is at the bottom, but he wanted to start off with a comment. I don't know if we should read both, but this from Joe K15. He left this. I think he's also a Spotify listener, but he left this this review under the comment section of one of our YouTube videos. I know. People are getting creative. That was creative. I like that. Yeah. I I, I saw this and I was like, damn. I wanted to make sure that I I read it. So, hey, fellas, I would have loved to elaborate on my honest five-star review left on Spotify. However, they don't allow comments to my knowledge, only stars. Since I refuse to put myself in eye jail, I guess this is the place where you get my moist feedback. Mm. Respect. So moist. Also, as one of your top 3% of listeners, data courtesy of Spotify 2023 wrapped. I mean, right? Obviously. Damn, top 3%. I will say the Spotify wrapped is a little bit unique. It's only for Spotify listeners per se. So I don't want to water down your status. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying that, you know, there uh, there could be some other challenges. So we recommend you listen to the show twice. I mean, he, I mean, I think he does. Look, he's over here and then he goes over to YouTube doing exactly what we say. Oh, valid point. Because, okay. I mean, for, yeah, our, for our Spotify listeners, the YouTube content has a little bit more uh, data, if you will. So you might as well go over there and check it out. It's, you get a little bit more. When we go charting. Yeah. Really helps to have the visual stimulus. Yeah. <laughs> if you're turned on by seeing something, you're yeah. visually turned on, we'll get you there. We'll get you there. We'll get you across the finish line. I will say I'm sad about the once week change. Me too. Um, yeah. These two bastards made me do it. That's it was actually your idea. Uh, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I am, however, looking forward to the deeper dives you promised. Okay. We went so deep today, bro. We went I mean, we dropped a lot of content. You if popped. you motherfuckers complain about 75, 25, 25% of the show being content, this show ain't the show for you. That wasn't You're welcome, one. Jeff. Yeah. You're Jeff. Yeah. Jeff. AKA Jeff. Ms. Omar. No. <laughs> Mrs. Hello. Uh, Five star review. Informative Entertainment, Big Bird, Chris, Ernie Said, and Grover Odun present the most pertinent financial discussions every week in a no BS yet comical fashion leaving the listener feeling in the know on both real financial data and inside jokes, usually having to do with the ding-ding. So wait, hold on. If I'm Ernie, how are you not Bert? Because I'm tall. But Bert's tall, right? 
I feel like he's got the this would be he's a got good the cone head. opportunity for us to say culturally that most children growing up in America watch Sesame Street uh, at some point. Okay. Okay. Whether it's a short period of time or a long period of time, and um, you have the hair, Chris. <laughs> fuck, that was cold blooded. And wait, so just to make things clear, right? Ernie's the which one is he? He's okay. The one with more hair, you fucking dick. Okay, don't you you make him describe it? Hey, but Bert's got Odun's eyebrow. The unibrow. Yeah. That can't be Odun? That's mean. He doesn't have a unibrow. He Come just has poor down. grooming habits. I've attacked Chris twice. I know. I've sight alone. Coming for you next week. Oh, he's coming. He's coming. Loaded. You, you did pop a can on him. I think you got him a little ornery. Yeah, yeah, you did. That's right. <laughs> yeah. You did pop a can on me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's why I'm mad. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe maybe it should be Oscar the Grouch. <laughs> Me or Saeed? I guess we'll never know. <laughs> Thank you so much for executing your vision of providing financial literacy in a fun, digestible manner. The way you engage with listeners also sets a higher standard for podcasts to follow. Higher Standard Podcast is a staple in my podcast list right next to J-R-E. Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan. Make sure it's a Joe Rogan. He wanted to make sure that he, he mentioned this last. Elevate your baseline. In crispy, high-definition audio. That, that, he was, that's a flex. That's an OG listener quote right there. Right. I really liked saying that. <laughs> I, I just felt like I was cooking. You yeah. know, like I'm out here. Like, you let me that, work. You wrote that yourself. I did. That was before AI, too. Wow. Like, that was all cerebellum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. Well, we tried to give you the best show we possibly could in approximately an hour. We did we did okay for the yeah. amount of content that we covered in an hour and eight minutes and some change. We did good. You guys are sticking around. Uh, we appreciate you. We love you. Head over to YouTube. Make sure you check out some of the cool stuff we got going on over there. Yeah, we actually going to jump right off this and into a, a separate segment that we will hopefully record for YouTube and possibly drop on a Friday drop. That'll be a little bit shorter, a little bit sexier. Yeah. And, uh, well, I guess you'll just have to check it out and see. Yeah. Odun, you got anything? Nope. I'm dying back here. Sorry, Chris. Dying of what? Oh, the coughing? The coughing, yeah. yeah. I just thought it was because you were salty as fuck. Boy. <laughs> Boy. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Bye. Bye.